So in the area of toxicity, so, you know, as an naturopathic doctor, we've, of course, always been aware of the importance of toxins in, in health as, as well as nutrition. But I think when we were in school, we were talking about toxins more from the perspective of the choice that people were making about how they lived their lives. You know, were they smoking, drinking too much, things like this, and what I would call the active determinants of health. But what I've seen in the half century I've been involved in medicine is that that has now changed. And now people are being exposed to what I'll call passively. And that is the passive determinants of health that become unhealthy. And what I mean by that is, yeah, somewhat independent of people's choices, the things which in the past have been normally considered healthy or at least neutral are now becoming significant sources of toxins for people. I really deeply started looking at this research when I started asking myself, why are we having this diabetes epidemic? So when I was in naturopathic medical school, half a century ago, diabetes affects less than 1% of the population. Now 10% of the population in the US has diabetes and is projected to become one third of the population. What happened? Obviously our genetics didn't change. And some people would say, well, we're eating too much sugar. And I think that's true, we're eating too much sugar, but the sugar consumption does not correlate with the diabetes epidemic. So when I started looking at, well, what does correlate with the diabetes epidemic? I found environmental toxins do. And as a matter of fact, as people's levels of things like phthalates go up, as the levels of arsenic goes up, as their levels of uh, PCBs goes up, they have more, more diabetes. So I started looking at, um, trying to answer the question, what percent of diabetes is due to environmental toxins? And I would now assert that about 90% of the diabetes epidemic is due entirely to environmental toxins. And people may say, well, wait a minute, how about obesity? And without question, obese people have way more diabetes than non-obese people. But here's the kicker, obese people with low levels of environmental toxins don't have an increased risk for diabetes. And you dive down and have dived down into this uh, relationship with diabetes. So let's talk about that a little bit more because that, as you said, is a, is it's not a health crisis waiting to happen. It is a health crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, just from that standpoint, you made a, a fairly uh, strong statement about you know a large majority of uh, individuals who have diabetes, or I would assume, quote unquote, pre-diabetes or metabolic mm -hmm. syndrome. That there is a relationship there. So, uh, what what are your when you talk to clinical colleagues? What are the kind of primary things that you are uh, you're telling them to do with those patients or you're suggesting that they do, you know, kind of the five top things that they should do with diabetic patients. Great. So, so these days I'm not seeing patients in primary care anymore, but I do a little bit of concierge medicine. What I do now with these patients is I test them for nutritional status. I check them for toxic status. And I also check them for genetic susceptibility to nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins. And as I dive into this, I realize that this is the primary reason why people are sick. So when I talk to doctors, I say to them, every patient with chronic disease, you must check them for toxins. And I put out a list for each chronic disease, which are the worst toxins. And I'm saying to people, let's check and see what the toxic load is based on their disease, um, find what the toxin is, figure out where it's coming from, get out of the body, and then promote the body's, body's healing. 
So then we look at, well, what are the worst toxins? And um, number one turns out to be arsenic, which to me was just a huge surprise. You may recall you had, had me talk about arsenic um, maybe three or four years ago. So I created a lecture around arsenic just for, just for that uh, interview you did with me. Um, I want to say that it, the presentation I made to you on arsenic understated the problem. <laughs> I, was, I was so surprised as I dug into the research. And here's why. So it turns out arsenic causes um, quite a lot of damage to the body, uh, DNA damage, et, et cetera. It poisons the pancreas, for example. Um, I would say it could be around 15 to 20% of diabetes is due to arsenic because arsenic basically poisons the, the beta cells in the pancreas. But I also check for the other um, primary toxin causing the most disease. So right now, um, the big ones are going to be arsenic, lead, mercury, and cadmium in terms of, they might say, the metal or uh, metametals. They all need to be checked for. And in terms of chemicals, PCBs are by far the worst. Unfortunately, we don't have cheap ways of easily measuring people's PCB levels, but they are a big, uh, pretty significant factor. Another factor I think is particularly important is for children to make sure that their organophosphate pesticide levels are as low as possible, and particularly want mom's organophosphate pesticide levels to be as low as possible as well, because uh, when the baby is developing in utero, as the uh, organophosphate levels increase, that baby's IQ will decrease uh, because they're neurotoxin, they cause, they cause damage. Let me um, ask you specifically then to measure these heavy metals, and then we'll talk about a little bit measuring these other uh, compounds. But measuring heavy metals, you are suggesting that uh, using uh, toenail uh, samples is best. How about hair samples? How about RBC blood? Yeah. So first of all, let me be clear. The um, I'm only recommending the toenails for arsenic. Okay. Okay, so the standard of care, except by conventional medicine, is blood and urine levels. Okay, so if you want to avoid any controversy, just look at blood and urine levels. There are two problems with only looking at blood and urine. Number one is they don't correlate with each other very well. So if these are supposed to be the standard of care, why don't they correlate with, that, with, each, with each other very well? Second is lots of research showing that blood and urine do not correlate very well with body tissues. They do correlate. I'm not saying they don't. They just don't correlate very well. So what is well accepted is that blood and urine are great measures of current exposure. They are not particularly good measures of body load. And how about then uh, hair analysis for these heavy, uh, for these toxic elements? So hair analysis is interesting in that it should work. And I find hair analysis is a great way of monitoring how effectively a, a person's uh, get rid of metals, but it's not necessarily the best for screening. And I say this because it looks like there's some people, and it looks like this may be a particular situation with autistic, situation with autistic children, is that normally get rid of methylmercury through the hair, it's the best way to get rid of it. But some people, because of genetics, don't get rid of metals through the hair very well. So if you have somebody with, metal, with their hair, it doesn't look like it's too high, it could be that they're just not getting rid of it through, the, through their hair. So if you find it high in the hair, that's great. Now you can then put a person, you know, help get the metals out of the body and monitor over time. That's a nice, cheap, easy way to monitor. But for the first screening diagnosis, I don't rely on it. You use urinary or um, uh, toxic metal screening as well. And how does that differentiate between 
uh, serum or whole blood. Okay. So there are people in the environmental medicine movement, and I'm one of them, who recommend using chelating agents. So what happens here is you give a person an agent that's known to bind to the heavy metals in the tissues. And the typical ones they use are DMSA and DMPS. You give a person an oral, well, somebody could do IV, but I, I really recommend against IV because too much chance for toxicity. And so I recommend oral because you have less toxicity. So for example, oral DMSA, only 10% of, of it is actually absorbed. So this goes into the tissues, binds to it more deeply, and gives you a better measure of what's in the tissues. The problem is it's not very good. Huge error rates, the R values are not very good, just that they're better than blood and urine. So the disadvantage of it is that's more controversial. Um, the advantage of it is you're, is you're gonna pick up more people at high levels. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's my standard of care. Um, I'm, so you're doing, you're doing a provoked urine, not yes, just, just, help. A, yeah, help just one. provoked urine. I got you. Okay. And, and again, I, I want to be clear, there's not great research support for it, but it just seems better. What are the, certainly you want to uh, stop the exposure, but we're all going to be exposed. We are all exposed in various ways. Do you have some uh, you know, kind of standard steps that you think are important to uh, chelate and pull out or certainly uh, um, uh, you know, making sure that they're having uh, regular bowel movements and that sort of thing, that's kind of standard care, but uh, other nutritional support or um, looking at uh, uh, long-term use of things like saunas, what are your kind of uh, long-term ways in which you help those kinds of individuals? Yeah, great, great question. <clears throat> so I, I, I want to start with where you started, and that is you must stop exposure, okay? No point going to a detox program if you keep the toxins coming in. So you must find the, 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 what the source of exposure is. And then number two, I recommend then supporting the body's own natural methods for getting rid of these toxins. And it turns out that's very simple. And that is getting people to eat more fiber. So as we evolve as a species, we're consuming 100 to 150 grams of fiber a day. Now the average person consumes 50 to 20 grams of fiber a day. Well, why is that important? So it turns out most of the toxins are excreted through the liver into the gut, where, where as we evolved as a species, our liver was expecting there'd be a bunch of fiber there to bind to the stuff to get out of the body. But because of our inadequate levels of fiber in the gut, we reabsorb a lot of these toxins through intrahepatic recirculation. So it turns out we excrete into the gut about 1% of our body load of mercury every day which actually sounds pretty good. That means within a few months, you get rid of all your mercury. The problem is we reabsorb 99% of that. The reason we absorb 99% of that is because there's no fiber there to bind to the toxins. So number one, I recommend to people, if nothing else, you must get fiber into people. And you might have somebody who says, no matter what I do with them, they, they seem to react well. If they have a lot of saturation of the tissues with a lot of these toxins, if you do anything that's going to loosen them from the tissues and get them into the circulation, if you can't get rid of them, it's just going to cause more trouble. So fiber will almost always work. Number two is do everything we can to promote glutathione production in the body. Glutathione plays an incredibly important role uh, in, in protection from toxins. As a matter of fact, it plays such an important role that as our toxic load increases, we increase our production of glutathione. So those are the two big ones. Now, having said that, vitamin C helps increase people's excretion of toxins. Now, after that, I then go to toxin-specific interventions. So if you know what the person is being exposed to, 
you can develop, <clears throat> or when you know it's high in the body, you can then develop strategy and optimize for the particular content. Let me change uh, topics a little bit and ask you about um, the, the issues with autoimmune disease. And there's really now some clear evidence that toxins are associated with a variety of autoimmune disease. Do you, um, have you looked into that? You've made some uh, fairly uh, strong statements about diabetes. Can you discuss the research a bit and what the toxicants are perhaps and, and that sort of things with autoimmune conditions? Sure, so this, um, uh, the, the research is very clear, huge, huge strong correlations between toxin load and uh, most of your uh, autoimmune diseases. And one of the things I've done with my team is try to figure out what percent of each disease is due to environmental toxins. So look at rheumatoid arthritis, for example. I think virtually nobody is aware that about 20% of rheumatoid arthritis is due to PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. Okay. So it turns out that the mechanism appears to be, and this is the great work of Aristo Vajani and Datis Garazian, it looks like the toxins bind to normal body tissues and those normal body tissues now become abnormal, and then the immune system starts going after them. Which, when, when I heard Datis tell me about that, it just makes so much sense. Because I always think to myself, why would our smart bodies become allergic to themselves? And that's just not how we work as a species, and those people would have <laughs> managed to weed themselves out of the gene pool long, long ago. Well, it turns out that the body is not reacting, not developing antibodies to normal tissues, it's developing antibodies to abnormal tissues because the tissue has been changed by being bound to metals and chemicals. You talked about PCBs. Do you, do you and I thought you had mentioned that, oh, it's hard to check for them. So how yes. do you check for them? Um, the best way to do it is with um, a fat biopsy. The second best way to do it is with a blood sample. And what you want to do there is if you uh, divide the total... PCBs by the amount of fat in the blood, you can get a, a, something of an equilibration with what's in the fat and the tissues. Uh, unfortunately, we're looking at the labs that are doing it, almost everybody's doing urinary levels, and it's just not a great measure of PCBs. So at this point, you, you can get the PCBs in the blood tested, but it looks like it's expensive and not, not very good. When do you, and I guess, how do you look for you have an elevation in something, you don't know the source, you are doing the quote unquote um, standard things in terms of being very uh, observant of you know, what your environment is, what you're eating. It is, are there some other uh, kind of areas that you commonly delve into to try to understand or try to discern what's causing an elevation in like uh, glyphosate? Yeah, so uh, I think you're talking about glyphosate. So yeah. the, so what I do there is um, look at exposure. My current method is to look at exposure. And so, for example, the main source of PCBs is um, farm fish. <laughs> so I'd say to people, the worst possible food for people to eat, as near as I can tell this time, is farm fish because of the PCB uh, contamination. And here's the issue. PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, are basically organic compounds. Uh, that have been added halogens, in this case, uh, 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 chlorine. The problem is <clears throat> that before we can detoxify the organic compound, we have to remove the chlorines. And that's done through what are called dehalogenase enzymes. 
Well, it turns out dehalogenase enzymes do not work very well in humans, so it's very hard for us to get rid of the uh, halogenated organic compounds. So you look at half-life of PCBs and humans, they range from three to 25 years. So once again, to the body, they're almost impossible to get rid of. So when we look at the PCBs, um, now you have to stop exposure, but you have to increase their elimination. And this is one of the few examples where I actually uh, prescribe to patients um, a drug, and this case, the biosequestrants. So things like cholestamide, cholestyramine, things like this, are very, very good at binding to the PCBs in the gut. So as the body laboriously tries to get rid of these things, having those, uh, uh, those biosequestrants in the gut will then bind to them more effectively and get them, get them out of the body more effectively. Let me ask you one last question in one kind of controversial area that I'm wondering what you think about, and that's uh, these certainly ketogenic diets can be very useful in, uh, in a number of different areas. How useful do you think they are um, in supporting biotransformation and metabolism? Do you think they hinder health um, are, are uh, not something to be concerned about? As you might expect, since I've been doing this for so long, I'm always asked by people, for, um, what is the best diet? Okay. And you know, I've, I've looked at them. As a matter of fact, I've tried most of them myself, ranging from um, vegan to vegetarian to over-vegetarian to high protein to standard American. I mean, I, I've, tried, I've tried them all personally. And, and I've also then looked at a lot of the research. And my observation, my, my best assessment at this point is that the human body is incredibly adaptable. As long as the diet is within a normal range um, and the foods are not contaminated and they're eaten in relatively good diversity and the foods are rich in nutrients because they've been grown properly, I don't think the kind of diet matters a lot. Now, having said that, I start getting into the extremes of diets with, might say, veganism on one side and an animal-based protein uh, ketogenic diet on the other side. The body can adapt to that as well, but now you've got to be way more careful because that adaptation comes at a price. And there's a big price with ketogenic diets that most people aren't realizing. And that is that the ketogenic diets are very acid-forming in the body. But here's the big thing. Number one is, as a person on an acid-forming diet, the paracellular space becomes more acidic and the cells become themselves somewhat more acidic. But the really big issue is now the kidney has to adapt to all the excess acidity and starts going through fairly significant changes in what it excretes uh, from the urine. And as the body becomes more acidic, it impairs glutathione's ability to bind to environmental toxins and it impairs the body's ability to produce um, glutathione. So as you're going on a more acid type of diet, we're actually starting to cause the body to do adaptations that are maladaptive. So it turns out as you make a person more acidic, they lose bones, they get more kidney stones, and here's a real big kicker. It also, for some reason, impairs the ability of the body to maintain muscle mass. So as ketogenic diets become more extreme, they actually get less muscle mass because of that. Now, many people are going to be, uh, you know, some of that um, effect is mitigated by the high levels of amino acids. And if they're exercising a lot, they'll mitigate it as well. But for the average sedentary type person, they actually start losing muscle mass as the diet becomes more acidic. So I'm not saying don't do a ketogenic diet, but I'm saying if you do a ketogenic diet, 
you're doing your constant body to have to do a lot of adaptation, uh, decreasing glutathione in the body, which is important for longevity as well as detoxification, and you're indu in inducing disease as well. And also, most of the actual ketogenic diets people consume don't have much fiber in them. So if I look at a person with high levels of toxins, the worst thing they can do in my perspective is a ketogenic type diet. So are you differentiating between doing a getting into nutritional ketosis for you know six to twelve weeks, uh, and as opposed to long term uh, being in you know a ketogenic diet for months and months, or are you uh, clearly um, you're going to start this process of uh, bone loss and uh, losing muscle mass uh, you know fairly soon, but in terms of uh, the kind of long-term issues with uh, nutritional ketosis, are you more concerned about that or are you concerned about them both? Uh, great question. So for sure, long-term. Uh, the short-term, I don't, short-term things don't bother me. Uh, I, don't, I don't care what somebody does for a few weeks at a time. Uh, as long as you get back into the normal situation, they'll adapt and be okay. Uh, where that transition is, is it two weeks, is it six weeks, is it six months? I don't, I don't know. I, but short-term, few weeks, I wouldn't worry about it at all. This is more long-term. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's a great uh, clinical pearl, I think, Joe.